we're coming down to what are those core needs that that is within this dyad or within this relationship and, and how are those needs not getting met and why are those needs not getting met hi everyone and welcome back to the ers walk and talk podcast for the month of february we are focusing on healthy hearts and healthy relationships and there's no one better to talk to about healthy relationships than my friend and former colleague dr celesta harris Dr. Harris is a forensic psychologist at the Texas Department of Public Safety, where she serves as a psychological services manager within the Victim and Employee Support Services Division. This is a two-part conversation, and in this first part, we talked about ways couples can improve their relationship, which can lead to stronger health. Studies have shown that feeling supported, understood, and accepted increases our happiness and reduces our risk for health problems. She's going to dive into really concrete steps for how couples can improve communication. We will be releasing part two of this podcast next Friday on February 18th, and we are featuring Dr. Harris on February 17th in a webinar called Building Healthy Relationships, so you can sign up for that through our show notes. All right, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining me on the ERS Walk and Talk podcast. I am really looking forward to having a conversation with you today. Thank you, Lacey. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited for the invitation, and um, hopefully I have some things I can offer today. Oh, I know you do. (laughs) I've heard you speak on many occasions, and I've learned so much from you personally, and uh, that's why I thought you'd be such a great podcast guest. And the topic that I really want to dive into today is on healthy relationships. February is Heart Health Month, so we're talking about heart health, but I think there's a huge connection between heart health and emotional health and how we manage relationships. So I want to just kind of start there. And I was wondering if you could sort of make the connection for us for how relationships and healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships can impact our overall health. Absolutely. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, there's the misconception that there is some sort of differentiation between physical health and emotional or psychological health. And that's not really the case. As you well know, it's it's a very kind of holistic system. And one piece of health can often play off of another piece of health. And, and so when we think about our relationships and the quality of those relationships, the impact that that has on our physical and mental health is tremendous. If you think about just the the impact of stress alone on the physiological and biological systems, we know that there are a a lot of areas within our physical functioning that's impacted by stress. So for example, your immune system is compromised when you're chronically stressed. Our sleep, uh, cardiovascular disease is significantly heightened when you're chronically stressed. And so if we think about how our relationships might impact that, if we have positive relationships, then we have a place within a group or within our loved ones, or whether it's work relationships or home and family relationships or significant others and romantic partners. If we feel supported and cared for and understood and loved and and accepted, then that goes a long way in helping us alleviate a lot of the external stresses that we may be under. We have a go-to, someone that we can confide in, somewhere, somewhere or someone where we can take those those burdens that we may be carrying or those insecurities or those worries and fears, and we can share them with someone. And social connections are not just to give us pleasure, but they influence our long-term health in a lot of ways. And it's just as powerful as getting adequate sleep, 
having a good diet, not smoking, refraining from drug use, you know, or, or alcohol abuse and that sort of thing. And so dozens of studies have shown that people who have social support from family and friends in their community are happier and have fewer health problems overall and have a longer life. Conversely, a relative lack of social ties is often associated with depression, anxiety, later in life cognitive decline, or, or even a propensity to develop dementia or Alzheimer's. And so they've done some studies, like one, for example, that examined over 300,000 people, found that a lack of strong relationships significantly increases the risk of premature death from all causes by 50%. So that's a tremendous statistic that we have there. And so that mortality risk roughly compares to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. And when we think about that, it also, our negative relationships if we're not getting our needs met and we're not feeling emotionally full or nurtured in those ways, then we seek other ways to try to meet those needs. And so that could be through unhealthy and maladaptive behaviors like overeating or overconsuming in other ways. Um, and they have found that women, for example, who are in unsatisfying or toxic marriages are at a greater risk for cardiovascular disease later in life. So again, we're really finding that there are all of these really strong connections between our emotional and physical health and our relationships play a huge part in that. It's so fascinating, you know, when you, that statistic is alarming when you consider how much our relationships actually impact our overall health. Um, and I know you provide therapy for couples and you provide therapy for individuals. When it comes to relationships, what are some of the most common things that you see people for? Like, what, what do you feel like people are struggling with the most when it comes to relationships? That's a good question, and, and it's really a pretty broad answer. But I think most people won't be surprised to hear me say communication. And, and it's communication is something that we hear a lot about. We read a lot about it. There are countless books and classes and various subject matter experts about communication but really when it comes down to couples, I would say that that is the primary presenting issue that I find. And they may not liken it to communication, that they may not be connecting those dots just yet. So it may be more perceived, uh, I don't feel supported by my partner. I don't feel loved by my partner. I don't feel appreciated by my partner. The, the roles within the house do not feel equal or fair. And, and so there's a multitude of reasons that couples may present for therapy. It could even be infidelity or substance use or something along those lines. But again, we're coming down to what are those core needs that, that is within this diet or within this relationship and, and how are those needs not getting met and why are those needs not getting met? And so helping that couple be able to identify and understand where that breakdown in communication is happening. And one of the things that I really pay attention to in those situations is you may be familiar with the Gottman um, couples therapy. It's a very well-renowned approach to couples therapy, if you will, and they have a multitude of resources. But the Gottmans have identified what they call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they've done a tremendous amount of research on these four particular factors in a relationship that have a significant ability to predict whether or not a couple will get divorced or whether they will stay together. And so the first of the four horsemen is criticism. Um, and so criticizing your partner is different than offering a critique or voicing a complaint. 
the latter two are more about specific issues, whereas criticism is more of an attack. And, and it's attack on the character of your partner. And you're kind of dismantling their being when you use criticism. So for example, a complaint would be, I was scared when you were running late and you didn't call. And I thought that we had agreed that we would do that for one another versus a criticism would be, you never think about how your behavior is impacting other people. You don't care about me. Um, it wasn't just about you forgetting. It's just simply that you don't care. So instead of focusing on the actual behavior, you're attacking their character as a person. And that's the kind of the first sign of the four horsemen. And that criticism, if unaddressed and allowed to continue on, can often develop into the second horseman, which is considered contempt. And so contempt is really where we demean our partner. Uh, we demean others. So for example, we mock them with sarcasm. Maybe we roll our eyes or we call them names or we ridicule, ridicule them in some way. We use body language that's invalidating to them and really just kind of shuts them down and, and places us theoretically in a more superior position than our partner. So for example, contempt would be a partner that comes home from a full day of work out at, in the office or in the field or what have you, whereas the other partner is perhaps working from home and the children are maybe doing virtual learning. Well, the partner comes in from the office or from the field and says, you wouldn't believe the kind of day that I had and uh, X, Y, Z. Well, the partner at home also wants to share the struggles of working from home and having kids do school at home and trying to deal with all of the variables that we and challenges that many of us have experienced in working from home now. But the partner that comes in from the field says, you have it so easy. You don't have to get up and get ready for the office. You get to stay home and eat what you want and drink coffee and watch TV and do your research on your laptop and the kids are busy with school. And so it's really invalidating what this partner at home is going through in those situations. And then the third horseman is defensiveness. And so again, you know, if we think about using that criticism and that contempt that lends itself to I'm being attacked and I need, I need to defend myself against these attacks that can breed this, this unwillingness, if you will, to demonstrate vulnerability, this unwillingness to apologize or say, Hey, I did have a role in this going awry or something going South and let me take ownership for that. So instead that defensiveness is placing the blame on the other partner, refusing to take acknowledgement or responsibility for, for your role and how that communication breakdown may have occurred. And then ultimately this kind of maladaptive communication style ultimately can lead to stonewalling. And stonewalling is what can happen when a person or a partner gets really flooded with emotion during an argument, or maybe it's a topic that's very hard for this person to discuss. And so what you'll see is they'll just shut down completely. They'll walk away, or they'll refuse to talk about the situation, uh, they'll go in the room and lock the door and I don't want to talk about this anymore. And so they kind of put their head in the sand and, and they won't, they won't try to resolve the issue for the other partner or with the other partner. And so what we find then sometimes is that you have one partner that wants to detach and stonewall and the other partner's like, no, 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 we have to fix it absolutely right now. So you have two very different conflict resolution styles at that point. Which, which lends itself to even greater conflict because one is trying to escape and one is trying to force a resolution at this point in time. And so helping couples identify some of those pitfalls and then helping them navigate how to better address those conflicts or issues moving forward.
That is such just a great thing, I think, for us to understand the four horsemen so that we can sort of identify it in ourselves. Like, am I being critical of someone that I love? Am I showing contempt or being sarcastic, you know, in my communication strategies? But what would you tell somebody who feels like maybe they're on the other side of that? Like they're the one being criticized or the one who feels like they're just constantly experiencing the other end of of the negative communication, if you will. I think it's really important in those situations to be able to take your emotional temperature. It's, It's critical when we are entering some sort of a conflict with someone that, that we really have a good sense for how are we feeling in that moment? How flooded are we? How triggered are we? Uh, is your heart racing? Are you biting the inside of your lip? Are you clenching your fists? What is your body doing and responding to? Because it's hard to respond appropriately or productively when you're flooded. And so it can be easy to respond to those attacks in a similar way which only amplifies that negative communication style. So being able to kind of step back just a little bit and communicate with using I statements with your partner. So I statements is very much about taking ownership for how you feel and how you're experiencing a situation. I feel unloved or disrespected or invalidated when you come in, you come in from work and you tell me that what I've dealt with all day isn't as important as what you've dealt with all day. It, it hurts me and, and it makes me feel defensive. And so let's find a better way to talk about that. And, and if you have a partner that's not willing to make those changes or hear you out, that's a whole other issue because sometimes there can be really toxic relationship dynamics And you may have a partner or someone in your life that's not willing to receive that feedback or make those changes. And then really what we're stuck with at that point is what are we going to do about it? I think a lot of people struggle. Um, What I find in working with clients, there's a big struggle, no matter what the situation is, uh, about focusing on the things that we don't have control over. And that includes other people's reaction and behavior. We, We cannot control someone else's reactions or behavior but we can control our reactions and behavior. And so we can make our needs known and we can communicate as healthily as possible. And that may not be received the way that we had hoped, but then the onus comes back to us about how are we going to respond to that? And what are we going to do with the information that we've now been given? Because we can't control them. And a lot of people struggle with anxiety and depression in particular, because we can get so hyper-focused on what we cannot change And we're going to stay stuck if that's where our focus remains. But if we can step back from that and identify, how am I responding to this? And how am I reacting to this? And what can I do a little bit different? I hope I don't butcher this quote, but one of my favorite quotes is from um, the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, who who was a really well-renowned psychiatrist and has a tremendous life history. And uh, in some of his work um, post-Holocaust, one of the things that he had said was, Between stimulus and response, there is a space, and it is within that space that lies our freedom and our independence and our power. So we we are confronted with a stimulus, and we have the choice in that space of how we are going to respond to that stimulus. And our reaction or response to that stimulus is what can determine our well-being and our health moving forward. That's such a great quote, and so 
difficult sometimes in that moment to find that space. Do you have any tips for people maybe that are in the moment? Like, what can we do when we are struggling to find the space to shift our response to a more productive communication strategy? I think that's a great question. And I I know I certainly struggle with that, especially when it's a topic I'm very impassioned about or or if it's a repeat argument that I'm having with my spouse. I'm like, why are we doing this all over again? And so we can be a little bit more reactive in those situations, I think. And so one of the things I really encourage for couples, especially those couples where you have two different conflict resolution styles, you've got the one that I want to fix it now and you've got the one of like, I'm flooded and I need a break. So what tends to happen in those situations is the person who gets flooded and turns away or stonewalls, the person that wants to resolve it can often feel dismissed or abandoned in those situations. And they become fearful, whether they consciously know it or not, they become fearful that this isn't going to get resolved and we're going to keep coming back to this. And so what I encourage couples to do is come up with what I call a pause plan. And a pause plan is where you sit down with whomever it is that you're struggling with in this communication style. And and I have a forum and everything that I help them use. But ultimately, you come up with a collaborative plan where any of us at any point in time can call a timeout in a conversation or conflict. And we have to agree to one another that we will respect that timeout. And what we do during that timeout has been predetermined. So for example, I'm going to go to the bedroom and you're going to go to the garage and we've decided it's going to be a 15 minute timeout. And during that 15 minutes, and this is a critical piece, during that 15 minutes, do things that are self-soothing for you, that physiologically calm your system down. You want to focus on deep breathing. You want to focus on really just getting yourself into a, a more calm headspace, which means You're not ruminating about how you're going to win this argument when that 15 minutes is up. That's not what you're thinking about. You're not sitting there talking about, oh, I can't believe they said this. And I can't believe they said that. That's not what you're doing. You're there to focus on you and getting yourself into the right headspace so that you can communicate your needs in a positive, productive, meaningful way. Now, the important part here, too, is at the end of that predetermined amount of time, The two of you have already agreed at the end of this 15 minutes, we're going to reconvene in the kitchen and we're going to approach this subject again. And you have to do it. You have to follow through with this. It demonstrates trust and buy-in for one another. But one of you, let's say, still isn't ready to talk about it. You can say, okay, I'm still not ready. I need another 15 minutes. And you have to have the mutual respect for one another to agree to this plan. So all of this plan is is derived when the two of you are in a pretty good space with one another. It's not something you try to come up with in the moment during an argument. So you come up with this plan beforehand, you implement it, and then you figure out, hey, what about this plan didn't really work for us when we tried to use it? And how do we adapt it? And so really, and that's a big part about being in any sort of a healthy relationship is understanding that we always have to adapt and learn how to better navigate one another because we're constantly evolving as, as biological creatures. We are changing as a result of our experiences and our dynamics and our environment. We're growing and we're learning. And that includes growing and learning with one another and being respectful of those differences. So 
so that you can get yourself to a place where you're able to hear what your partner is trying to say to you. And you're able to put your needs aside for a moment so that you can really try to put yourself in that other person's shoes and try to understand their perspective as much as possible. So being a good listener is so critically important. And this is a tough one. A lot of people, um, I think the art of listening is is being challenged and it's kind of going to the wayside a bit. We have so many distractions all of the time. So being able to minimize those distractions, put your phone on silent, turn the TV off, really focus on one another. And when you're listening to your partner, it's not about deciding what you're going to say next. It's about trying to understand what it is they're attempting to communicate to you and then asking them, saying, hey, this is what I hear you saying. Do I have this right? Am I in the ballpark? And that gives them the opportunity to either say yes, thank you, you get it, I'm so glad. So now you've you've already got a, some of some of that relationship on the mend, right? Or they might say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Let me, and then you have the opportunity to say, okay, help me understand. I'm having some difficulty putting these pieces together or really getting where you're coming from. So help me see it and taking the time to really learn what that is and then being able to step back and you may have come to some realizations about yourself or your partner that maybe you hadn't hadn't thought of before. And your response can be a more educated response. It can be a more empathic response and it can be a response that truly demonstrates to your partner I want this to work and I'm invested in this going well. And you too will have your time to speak, but you, you, sometimes we try to force it and then neither party is listening and they're just talking at one another. So empathy is a huge theme I'm hearing. (laughs) So could, could you sort of explain to people what empathy is? I think sometimes we get confused between what is sympathy and what is empathy. It is it is kind of a difficult distinction sometimes to make. And I think Brene Brown has a phenomenal talk on this particular subject and a great video that I love to use in some of the classes. But sympathy, the way I think about it, is you're feeling sorry for someone. And it's almost like it's a more distanced type of experience. Look at them, how, how sad for them. I feel so sorry for them. Whereas empathy is more of a, let me try to put myself in your shoes and let me try to really, truly better understand what this experience must be like for you. Now, that's a challenge because we can never truly fully understand what someone is experiencing. We're all such unique creatures and our reactions or interpretations of events are colored by all of our previous experiences from infancy to the present. And so we can have some idea of what someone may have gone through, but we can never really say, I completely understand. So I think it's important to know that when you are trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes, um, really considering all the different facets of what that experience might be like for them, and then trying to imagine what that would would feel like internally and, and how that might impact the way this person is reacting or responding in certain situations. Instead of taking that, and I'm not saying sympathy is bad, but a lot of people don't like receiving sympathy from others. It makes them feel weak or that something is wrong with them. 
Um, whereas empathy is like, I'm going to be here with you. I'm in this with you as much as I can. And I want to understand as much as I can. Thank you. That's such a great description of empathy. I think that's one of the things that has really helped me in my own relationship is just trying to put myself in someone else's situation, whether it's my kids or my husband. Because I think even in our relationships with our children, a lot of times we're just speaking to them like, you need to do this, you need to do that. But if you can put yourself in their shoes and try to think about what it felt like to be a 12-year-old, then it changes maybe how I speak to them and makes me a little bit more kind and and patient when I'm feeling frustrated. So I love, love that. And I think it's just such an important part of any relationship. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. If you would like to learn more about this topic, please be sure to tune in for part two of this conversation where we're going to go in depth on cognitive distortions and all of the incredible resources out there to help us improve our communication. And that one will be airing on February 18th. Through the show notes, you will also find links to register for our ERS webinar called Building Healthy Relationships that will be featuring Dr. Harris and Dr. Townsend from DPS. If you're listening after February 17th and you still want to get to that webinar, you can find the recording archives also in our show notes. I have put the link to the three-minute video we discussed on the difference between empathy and sympathy in the show notes here as well. Please watch that video when you have a chance because it will change how you communicate. It has certainly changed how I communicate and how I look at difficult situations. I just want to thank everybody for being a part of this community. Thank you for all you do. I am just so grateful to be able to lead these conversations with incredible people like Dr. Harris and to be able to support the health of the state's workforce. All right. Thanks, everyone.